It's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with episode number 55 of The Yacking Show. This is where we bring you tips about business, life, and more, and we give you ideas to survive in the changing world that we find ourselves in. As always, we have a lineup of interesting guests. Today is no exception, and it's one of our early international guests we're bringing to you today. But I'm going to keep you in suspense for a second or two longer while I welcome my co-host, Kathleen. Hi, Kathleen. How's it down there in Waterloo today? Hello, Peter. Well, it's, uh, it's a little bit dreary today, but uh, actually our guests add sunshine to the show. So thank you for that. And thank you all for tuning in. As per usual, we so appreciate you uh, as well as all of your comments. So do please keep them coming. We read all of them. And if anyone out there is interested in becoming a guest on our show, please don't hesitate to reach out to Peter or myself. We welcome that. And as Peter mentioned, yes, we do have a special guest coming to us from Germany today. And his name is Dr. Stefan Meyer. Welcome, Dr. Meyer. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> Dr. Meyer, you, uh, or may I call you Stefan? Just call me by my first name, that's all right. All right, I'll do that. You have a doctorate in business psychology. Uh, you're a consultant that helps businesses go through radical organizational changes. Can you please expand uh, on this and tell our audience a little bit about your background and how you embarked on this career? Yes, certainly. First of all, let me correct this one tiny piece. Uh, I have a master in psychology and a doctorate in business administration. Okay. Yeah. And um, so I did my original studies in business psychology in the 1990s. And, in this, and at that time in Germany, we still had this other system. So you don't get a master officially, you get a diploma. That's how we called it then. And uh, later on, the uh, university system adapted to the international standards with bachelor and master, etc. And quite Rather late in my life, I decided to do a crazy thing, which is getting a doctorate degree. And um, this is quite recent. So about almost a year ago, I stood in England on the racing track with this um, quite colorful gown and this funny hat. And I got <laughs> awarded a PhD, which was quite a nice experience. And uh, so so what happened? Um, I um, I, when, I, when I finished my studies of business psychology, I applied for a job at a big international uh, consulting company in Germany. They're called Accenture, maybe you've heard of them. And so I, um, in, in the first years of my business life, I landed in the department for change management because when you're a psychologist, they put you in the department for change management. That's what they do. And I was on big change projects with uh, German railways and Volkswagen and German telecom and clients like that. And uh, later on, I became self-employed and continued doing what I've been doing with Accenture. So for around about 25 years, I've been doing change projects, business transformation, or as they call it nowadays, digital transformation, which from my point of view is more or less all the same. Anyway, I think I can say that I gained some experience with change, with different change initiatives. And my personal observation is that there are at least two different kinds of change. There's this one very common 
which is probably the majority of change. Everything goes very slowly and you want to get everyone on board and it's step by step and it's more like this medieval dance, you know, three mm -hmm. steps ahead and two steps back and uh, nothing really happens and nothing really changes and people get tired, etc. So this is the majority of change project I experienced, but there was also this other one kind of strange, rather rare kind of change. And I called it radical change. And that's where really interesting things happened. And there was really a potential for a change for the better. And things were actually different than they were before. So I tried to find out how can I learn more about this radical change because I find it quite interesting. And then I discovered that not only there is little literature about radical change, but there's even less scientific research. And this is why I thought about doing it for myself, my uh, scientific research. So first I went to a German university that was actually um, some friends um, suggested that they have a good doctorate program and I should talk to so-and-so. And I talked to them and they told me that this interdisciplinary research somewhere in the middle between business psychology and business administration is not allowed in Germany. I still don't think he, uh, he probably was out of his mind or drunk. I don't know. I, I still don't believe it. But anyway, that's what I was told. And so I went to England. I went to an English university. And um, yes, I get, also gained some experience with the English way of getting a doctorate. And that was quite interesting. So uh, since I did my, my previous psychology studies on a quantitative basis, which is with many numbers and lots of statistics, I had more than 300 variables that changed over time and I had complicated statistic programs. I wanted to go the other way, not the quantitative, but the qualitative approach. So I got a, um, um, a supervisor, a professor who was specialist in that. And I, I told him what I wanted to do. And he suggested that I do interviews, that I conduct interviews with experts. My thought was, uh, when I want to find out things about radical change, who is the most competent person to talk about it? Probably people who do radical change several times in their lives, which are, from my point of view, interim managers. Mm -hmm. These are people who are hired explicitly for turning a company around. Uh -huh. They are very special people, very, very special characters, very strong-willed characters, very interesting people anyway. So I started doing interviews with some interim managers from Germany. And while I was in the process of doing that, I had lunch with an American business friend. And he asked, so why don't you also do some interviews with interim managers from United States? I could give you some introduction. And I said, okay, we have a deal. And then I started doing that. And then my supervising professor said, we need a different perspective. You should also talk to some consultants. And I was already on my way to an international kind of research. So I talked to consultants from Canada to South Africa. And then my professor said, we, you should get an inside perspective, talk to some line managers. And I talked to line managers from England to Hong Kong. And lastly, my professor suggested, um, I've been talking to all these people from the world of private business. I should talk to at least one person from the government. And in that situation, it was quite practical that it, the university in England was in the same city as is the headquarter of the British Secret Service. And I talked to one of those guys, an interview that we internally called the James Bond interview. <laughs> Of course, James Bond wasn't his real name, but if I told you his real name, I had to kill you, so we don't want that. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, it was quite interesting. At first, I was rather surprised that he was very much in favor of radical change, but on second thought, what else does a 
Secret right. Service do, right? Yeah. So it makes yeah. perfect sense. Um, yes. And I had all these interviews and I uh, collected insights and I came to almost 200 different insights. I get that out of these in interviews, which is quite a lot and just too many to keep them all in your head at the same time. So I built a tiny framework to condense everything. And this framework I called the Sacred Cow Framework. And of course, it's an acronym. So every letter in sacred and cow stands for something. And also it is a matrix. So it's sacred times cow. In other words, six times three fields of action. So 18 uh, different leadership challenges. Interesting. Yeah, that's what the sacred cow framework. I, I'm going to jump in. I, I've heard the sacred cow terminology before. And of course, I've looked at your website. So I know a little bit more about what you do. But many of our listeners might not be familiar with the term sacred cow. And when we talk about exterminating sacred cows, I know obviously it's metaphorical, but we do have some animal lovers that listen to us. So mm -hmm. I think we need to put their minds at rest, you know. <laughs> so yeah, just to explain for our listeners and viewers what, is, what your, your idea of a sacred cow. Yeah, let me give some background on that. So my native language is German. And in German language, we have a very common metaphor about the sacred cow. And uh, there's actually a, a scientific background to it. There once was a philosopher named Thomas Kuhn who coined the phrase paradigm shift. And he, mm -hmm. he claims that there is a constant change between two phases, paradigm and paradigm shift. So paradigm is when everyone does everything in a very conventional way. There's in, in whatever trade you look at, there, is, mm -hmm. um, there are traditions and there, there are standard tools and there are standard procedures and everyone follows this kind of standard way of doing things and then suddenly someone discovers the old ways of doing it are not working anymore we need some more something more appropriate something more fashionate and then everyone enters this phase of reorientation and it's very confusing and experience are made and many of them fail and it's total chaos and at the end of this phase suddenly people agree on a certain new procedure and certain new tools so new standards are established and this phase is called paradigm shift and when the mm -hmm. paradigm shift is over another phase of paradigm continues until once again several years later people get dissatisfied again and paradigm shift and paradigm etc etc so this whole yeah this whole change of paradigm shift is metaphorically called the sacred cow so this is why i resorted to that metaphor okay 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 and, and of course you go into um, in, on your website, of course, you mentioned about slaughtering the so-called sacred cow, and maybe you can expand on that, just, just breaking down those, those barriers, basically. Yes, it's getting rid of the old paradigm that is not timely anymore. In other words, when you discover that the way you're doing things is not up to date anymore, you, you go into this phase of paradigm shift and try to find newer, more appropriate ways of doing things. That's killing the okay. sacred cow. Right. But <clears throat> there's more so, to a sacred cow than that, correct? In other uh, words, no animals are harmed in this. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you. I think a lot of people would be relieved by that. But um, there's a saying that I've come across often that uh, culture trumps strategy every time. And I think a lot of the sacred cows that you talk about are, are part of the culture of the organization, correct? And yes, exactly. Uh, I, I actually had this experience when I was in a project with German railways that was in the 1990s. And at that time, they all already thought about 
getting the ticket sale onto the internet, which was mm -hmm. quite new and, and quite um, yeah original for that time and sure. for, especially for a very traditional company like the German Railways. So already in, in these times, I, I was a, a tiny cog in the wheel of a gigantic project where we made this possible, selling tickets on the internet. However, I discovered that it was not the technology that was the most challenging thing, which was quite challenging already, but even more so, there were high-ranking managers and even members of the board at German Railways who said, oh, we don't need this kind of thing and the internet is never going to turn out. And we have these, you know, well-established ways and people go into a booth to a grim-faced officer and they beg him <laughs> to print the ticket and the customers want this and they love it and they couldn't imagine doing it any other way. So many people thought that way and that was a, a much greater challenge to somehow still perform the change with all these people on board. Right, right. And do you, do you work with smaller companies? Occasionally, yes, yes. And do they have the same sacred cow problems as, as larger corporations or organizations do? They do, and good people, good employees, are actually, uh, they, they know about it and they're sick of it. For example, I had a project with a, a medium-sized family business, already 100 years old, and they had the, the tradition of uh, selling healthcare gadgets via the uh, health insurance. So health insurance means there are standard products and there are standard margins. So the people, the, the, the project shouldn't get too expensive, but they, this company had very good engineers and they, they thought we also want to do something that is absolute state of the art, the most innovative things you could think of. And they developed two or three of these products, but of course they are extremely expensive. You couldn't sell them via the health insurance. So I helped them build up a new department that's called premium products. And the, the, this uh, department is aimed specifically at high net worth individuals. So people who pay for themselves directly and they needed different salespeople, not the ones who are used to talking to the health insurance, but the ones who are able to talk to wealthy customers. And uh, so also in, in this situation, we had a family business who just got tired of their sacred cows and wanted to move along a new way. New way, yeah, interesting. Tell me, with all your interviews that you did and all your traveling and all your work consulting with uh, so many different organizations, do you see a, a lot of uh, managerial differences between Europe and North America? I don't know so much about the way things are managed in North America. What I, uh, the difference I noticed uh, with my interviews with both interim managers from the States and from Germany is that um, the, the German ones much more complain about um, red tape, about governmental rule, about mm -hmm. how how easy it is to do something that could be considered illegal later on. So um, the, the American interim managers I talked to seemingly were not so much worried about this. Maybe they are, but uh, this doesn't seem to be so much of an issue over there. This is the right. experience I had. So we have lots of government and lots of um, laws that people just cannot comprehend because there's just too many of them. And this is probably one part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Stefan, if I'm the leader of a major organization, how would I know that I, I could use your help? How would I know? How would I look at my team or look at my organization and realize you know, we need to bring you in? Yes, yes, of course. That's a very good question. Um, 
I, um, so I had long form interviews with my respondents and I asked them several things. And uh, one of the um, questions or, or probably among all the questions I asked, there was one question that I considered to be the most interesting from my personal point of view, which is, does every organization need a radical change now and then? Because if the answer to this is yes, then we should rethink how leadership is working mm. because currently radical change doesn't play a major role in how we think about leadership. So anyway, I asked all these people about, um, do they think if radical change is something every organization should do on a regular basis? And I would have loved if everyone would have given me the same answer. This doesn't happen. It's science. So there's a, a divide in, in the answers, but it's a divide right uh, through the middle. So one half of my respondents said, yes, they believe that every organization should change radically, maybe every few years, but uh, preferably before the crisis hits you, you'd need this in order to survive on a long-term basis. So this is one half of my respondents. The other half of my respondents said, no, not necessarily, only under certain prerequisites. So I asked, what are these prerequisites? Three of them I heard. So first of all, change in legal requirements. You have a business model, suddenly it becomes illegal. That's a good reason for radical change. No one would disagree about that. Secondly, mm -hmm. a progress in technology. So in most cases, it means you have competitors and somehow in the eye of your customers, your competitors look more modern than you do because they, have, they use these new tools and you yeah. use the old tools. And this is also a good reason to change. And this is everything that currently is dealt with under the label of digital transformation. So we are probably in, in, a, in an era where this is a major thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. So these are the two reasons. And the last reason is events of higher power, such as a pandemic or something mm -hmm. like 9-11 or something like this. These are events that happen very rarely, but when they happen, there's lots of change going on. So depending on what your belief is about radical change, either you say, well, every organization needs radical change anyway, or you say only under certain circumstances, some of them may be valid right now. And let me add this. So if someone says um, radical change, yes, change, okay, everything is changed and uh, nothing is as continuous as change, an old saying, but radical change, we don't really need this. And then I say, oh really? So imagine for a minute, you are the new prime minister of Britain. And in a phase of modernization and international standards, you think about switching the traffic from driving on the left side to driving on the right side, because that's what everyone else in continental Europe is doing. So you think um, we should do this. And I feel responsible for this as the new prime minister. However, we have to get everyone on board. We have to do this gradually. So first day only <laughs> trucks drive on the right side of the road. Second day also buses. And lastly, on the third day, everyone drives on the right side of the road. And everyone can easily see this is never going to work. So obviously there are situations where <laughs> radical change is the most reasonable approach. And this is what I'm talking about. And since I discovered this um, kind of insecurity by some clients if they need a radical change or not i just i developed the sacred cow canvas which i would like to talk you through right now it's a good example of how you can make up your mind whether you or your organization need a radical change right oh, now please go ahead mm -hmm. go ahead yes 
Yeah, so the cow canvas um, consists of six fields of decisions and you walk through them one by one. And uh, when you finish the last one, you have a better um, picture of whether you need a radical change right now or not. And I am going to do this with a specific example. Um, the, specific, uh, the, the example is from my childhood in the 70s and 80s that tells you how old I am. In, in those times when you wanted to listen to your favorite music, it was quite hard in Germany because their music television hadn't been invented yet. The music on the radio, in most cases, was quite awful. So what do you do? You go to a record store if you already know what kind of music you prefer to listen to. You would buy one of these large black vinyl records with your favorite band or your favorite uh, singer. And with that record under your arm, you would run home to your living room because that's where the record player is at. What? You put the record on the player and you would start. And now I can see how the, the, the older part of your listeners get a warm feeling in the heart yeah. because I remember <laughs> this thing as well. So this is what happened in those days. And now in, if you do this in Germany, there was also the awareness that although there were different brands of record players, there was one that was considered the number one brand, kind of the Mercedes of record players. And that was the brand called Dual. And you might wonder if they once were the premium brand of all there was, why aren't they around anymore? Because they went bankrupt and somehow disappeared. They could be the leading music provider, if not in Germany, maybe even in the entire world, the, right. the leading music provider as an internet store, as a streaming store, whatever, you know, they could still be around, but they aren't. So what happened? And I claim it has to do with them not caring about the sacred cows. So if I would lead them through the sacred cow canvas, it would go like this. The first field in the sacred cow canvas is what the customer gets. So if you buy a product at Dual, what do you get? You get a record player. That's quite easy. By the way, the last field, this field number six, is what the customer should get. This is where we're going to land, but step by step. So what the customer gets is a record player. Second step, what is your sacred cow? In other words, who do you think you are? So if you, if you would have asked the, the employees of the company Dual, who are you? Well, we are in the record player business because producing record players, that's what we do around here. Step number three is the taboo. The taboo is what everybody knows and nobody dares to talk about. So uh, if you would ask the employees, is it, do people really need a record player? Well, yes, but honestly, they don't want a record player because it takes up space. What they really want is their music and the record player is the only way for them to get to their music. But if we think about it on a long-term basis, the record player at the moment is the, the most appropriate way to getting at their music, but there may be a time when there's a more fashionate, a cheaper, a faster, a more elegant way of getting to their music. And this one, this might be a time when people don't need the record player anymore, but right now they need the record player. This is the taboo. And this is why we don't talk about it because we want to stay, we want this situation to stay as long as possible. Right. So this is step number three. Step number four is the essence or the realness. There is a, a German philosophical word, it's called Eigentlichkeit, which is really hard to translate, but probably the essence of it would be an appropriate term in English. So what's the essence behind it? The essence means, okay, so people buy a record player, they want to listen to music, but why do they want to listen to music? And I claim because music makes them feel good. Because when I don't feel good, I listen to two of my favorite tunes and I feel better already. Or in the, in the morning when I'm not quite awake, I listen to something with the rhythm and I'm more awake. So that's how it works for me. And um, 
So we could say that the essence behind all of it is making people feel better. And then we get to step number five, which is the radical change, which is the opposition, the opposition to the sacred cow. The sacred cow is we are in the record player business and the radical change would be we change who we are. We are not in the record player business. We are in the business of providing music so that people can feel better. Yeah, it's the yeah. music business and it's the feel better business on a broader range. Yeah. So we come to step number six, what the customer should get, what the customer get as a record player, what they should get is music so they can feel better. And I would presume if the employees of the company Dual would have thought in a similar way about their situation, they might have survived the mm -hmm. declining demand in record players. So this is what the Sacred Cow Canvas is all about. Very good. Very, Very good. Interesting. Very interesting. So you're actually preparing them for the future, but at the time, but at the time, the only viable option for consumers to hear music was through the record players. So how do you, how would you project that far ahead to say that they're, you know, because of technology, technology would introduce something new, a new platform for playing music, but we don't know what that is yet. It's an unknown. Yes, um, it, I, would, I would say it's an entrepreneurial decision to think about that. And there are different ways of looking at it. I once had a customer in the finance industry and they had a product that was obviously going down downhill. There was a declining demand because people uh, got used to doing things via the internet and the more people are on the internet, the less people would buy their product. And there, first there was a member um, um, ahead of the board uh, who said, oh, we, we have to think on a long-term basis. We have to develop a new product that is more up-to-date. But he, uh, the majority of members on the board said, um, no, um, we have made enough money. And if the company is going downhill, that's quite all right. We are going to downhill as well. And if there's no demand anymore, we're going to close the company because we are all satisfied. We have made enough money for the rest of our lives. That's okay with us. So if, if they would have asked the employees, they probably would have told you something different. Sure. But I mean, it's an entrepreneurial decision. If you say we're going to close down the company, that's our decision. Okay, fine. You have to respect that. But mm -hmm. there may be entrepreneurs who say, no, we want to stay ahead of our game and we want to provide a future for our employees. So if one business area is shrinking, we are going to establish another business unit that is growing to compensate for that. And this is how other people would react. And they are in desperate need of taking a constant look at their sacred cows. Right. I, I would imagine right now there's three industries I can think of that need to look to think about radical change. And that would be the airline industry, the cruise ship industry and the hospitality industry in general. So would you agree that they all need to do some serious changes if they want to stay in business? Um, yes. Also, a very a German point of view, but currently we have probably a similar situation with the car industry. Yes. And they, it's, it, or the broader subject is mobility. So people mm -hmm. need to get from A to B, but how do they do that? And there's currently some radical change going on. 
Yeah, sure, sure, sure. We, we are getting towards the end of our time, Stefan. So I think it's important that uh, you tell our listeners and our viewers how they can contact you should they need to look at their own sacred cows in their organizations. Yes, certainly. Um, three ways of finding me. I have a Twitter account with five daily pieces of advice about radical change under the label Stefan underscore Meyer. I'm sure we're going to put a link on uh, we will put it on yeah, for sure. Certainly. The second thing is I'm quite active on LinkedIn. You can find me there as well. I have a very often name. So if you just type in my name, you're probably not going to find me. But if you type in my name with Sacred Cow uh, or Google it or whatever, that should be an easy thing to do. And the direct way to my website is sacredcow.expert. So I really uh, acquire the interesting domain sacredcow.expert. Uh, Expert is a top level domain, believe it or not. Very. Excellent. Well, that's great. And th th those links will be in the description and <clears throat> there will be captions for the video viewers on the bottom of the slides. We have uh, another minute left. Have you got a message for uh, perhaps entrepreneurs who are watching this, who are sitting there wondering how they're going to survive this whole coronavirus pandemic? In a couple of words, what's your message to small entrepreneurs right now? I would suggest take a look at your sacred cows. The less sacred cows you have, the bigger is your chance of survival. Right. Excellent. And you Good work advice. with people all over the world. I do, yes. Excellent. I, I, I have an uh, American high school diploma and a British doctorate. I, I hopefully am able to talk to people all over the world. And I've got to ask you a quick one in the last few seconds. You mentioned South Africa. I lived in South Africa for 14 years. I lived in Africa for most of my life before coming mm -hmm. to Canada. Did That's you right. notice in the people you spoke to in South Africa, did you notice any major differences between their outlook and the rest of the world or Europe in particular? I think South Africa, in addition to everything else that's going on worldwide, also have a rather distressed political situation. So Absolutely. this is also something people always talk about in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. I, I noticed when I was living there because of sanctions, there was quite a maverick atmosphere. And uh, well, we've just got to manage to do it ourselves. And that led to some amazing radical change. When you think mm -hmm. South Africa did the first heart transplant, uh, made all sorts of things that no one thought South Africa could ever make. And we don't know to, need to go into detail. Uh, it would indicate to me that, that pressure sometimes produces amazing results. So. It certainly does, yes. Well, that's about our time. So I'm going to hand back to Kathleen to finish our show off. Stefan, from me, thank you very much. Over to Kathleen. Thanks well, for having thank me. Thank you so much, Stefan, for being with us today. We so appreciate it. And perhaps you can join us again in, an, uh, in another show down the road. And thank all of you for joining us once again. Uh, please keep your comments coming. We so enjoy them. And if anyone out there is interested in becoming a guest on our show, please do not hesitate to reach out to either Peter or myself. So until next time, we'll see you again. Take care. Mm -hmm.